tonight we are going to continue our study in Jeremiah. We are in chapter 27, session 25. Of course, you all know the background by now, but repetition means you memorize it. I could ask John Lash right now to tell me about the mountain peaks of prophecy, and he could tell you as well as I can because he has heard me talk about it so many times. So remember, Jeremiah was a a patriot, and he was a God-fearing prophet. And of course, because he was preaching repentance to the Jews, he was accused of being a traitor because he was saying the temple is going to be destroyed. He was hated by his own people. Now, of course, we talk about three conquests of Jerusalem that we will reference tonight. And it's important to understand that Jerusalem was literally destroyed over a period of 19 years. There was the first subjugation in 606 where Jerusalem became under the control of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. At that time, just a few thousand of the key leading individuals, members of the king's household, some of the wealthiest, some of the men of influence, were taken back to Babylon and incorporated into uh, the, the uh, leadership uh, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Then, 11 years later, after there had been a decision to align with Egypt and quit paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, there was a second subjugation. And again, the city wasn't destroyed at this time. At this time, you had about 10,000 blacksmiths, upper middle class, small business owners uh, that were taken back. And Ezekiel was taken this time. And then finally, in 587, after a third rebellion, Jeremiah was there through this whole period of time. The city was leveled, the temple was destroyed, and millions of Jews were taken captive or killed. So these three, what we call three of the major prophets, were contemporaries with Jeremiah being the senior, Daniel being taken in that first conquest, ministering inside, actually rising to number two in the empire under Nebuchadnezzar, and then Ezekiel taken 11 years later and ministering to the refugees in a city called Tel Aviv, about 50 miles south of Babylon. Now, Jeremiah's ministry was a long ministry and what we would consider as fruitless There wasn't a lot of evidence of any success as far as his, uh, as far as his mission. However, he was faithful to do exactly what God called him to do. He preached for about 40 years, beginning in a good time during the midst of the Josiah Revolution or the Reagan Revolution, uh, Josiah Revolution, literally, uh, and then all the way through the subjugation and then the rule of very poor uh, leadership, godless leadership. Now, chapter 27, 28, we're going to get through tonight. A confrontation takes place between Jeremiah and false prophets in front of King Zedekiah, the administration, political administration, and in front of the priesthood right in the temple court. Uh, This is a time of conflict, a time of right versus wrong, and there's always conflict when there's truth trying to eradicate error. Uh, and this took place, as you can see down here in the timeline, during midway or, or the early part of Zedekiah's 11-year reign. So, chapter 27 in verse 1. And in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, First of all, chapter 27 and 28 clearly take place during the reign of Zedekiah. This is not in the Septuagint. It wound up being in some of the copies through the years and wound up being incorporated into the English text. Now, let me tell you what the Septuagint was. The Bible was written in Hebrew. 
force it began being written down by Moses, then through Joshua, then through the major minor prophets, uh, through uh, uh, Jeremiah wrote a substantial part of the record of, of uh, uh, Kings and Chronicles, uh, and it was all in Hebrew. By 330, Greece ruled the world. You remember Alexander the Great. After his death, it was the kingdom was divided into four Greek generals, but it was still Greek, and the Greek language was what the, was the language of the world. You know, right now English is spoken of most places worldwide. Even you go into Muslim countries, even to Oriental countries, and English is still a language that's universal. Well, at this time, Greek was the universal language. Well, about 280, a group of 70 Hebrew scholars gathered in um, Alexandria, Egypt, and they were commissioned to translate the Hebrew text into Greek, which was the language of the day. That's called the Septuagint from the, the, the reference to the 70. Well, that would have been the Bible that Jesus used predominantly. The Septuagint was the primary uh, book that was used during, and by the way, the Bible was the, old, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, the same thing that we would call the Old Testament was called the Tanakh and the Hebrew, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Kedavim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And it was arranged a little bit differently. They had 24 chapters, whereas we have 39, but it's the exact same material. In the Septuagint, verse 1 isn't there. It is, and there's really not a, a great explanation other than this verse, verse 1 of chapter 27, is the exact ver, ver, verbiage of verse 1 of chapter 26. It's theorized that a Hebrew scribe wrote it down when he shouldn't have. And if you know anything about Hebrew translation, the Hebrews have such a reverence for the Word of God, and they refuse to run the risk of, uh, of taking the Lord's name in vain, that even to this na- day, they will not pronounce the name God. I mean, it's yad heh vav heh pronounced Yahweh originally. Now, in the Hebrew text, uh, when a Jew comes to the word uh, God, they will either say uh, Lord or Hashem, which means the name. So, they don't want to run the risk of mispronouncing His name because they consider that taking the Lord's name. So, what's funny is uh, the Jewish tradition, once something was put down there, they won't change it. They might make a note in the center column saying that this shouldn't be here. However, once it's there, it's there. So, verse 1 says Jehoiakim. This, as you'll see as we go through the rest of the chapter and the next chapter, this is clearly the reign of Zedekiah. So, with that, let's continue. Send them to king of Edom and the king of Moab and the king of the Ammonites and to the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers which come to Jerusalem and unto Zedekiah, king of Judah. So what's taken place here are ambassadors from these countries that surround Judah. They had sent a delegation to come to Jerusalem to see King Zedekiah. Now these five neighboring countries, uh, remember the political history and the political background. After Daniel's uh, taken captive, uh, King uh, Jehoiakim was placed on the throne for 11 years. A few years into this, as he was paying tribute to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he started saying, boy, we really, this really stinks paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And they started aligning with Egypt to rebel and throw off paying tribute to the king of Babylon. Well, what ultimately led up to that second conquest when Ezekiel was taken captive, as 
Nebuchadnezzar sent a, 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 a detail of his troops, but then they actually called on some of these other subject nations and asked for their militia or military to get involved. And Ammon and Moab and Edom and Phoenicia all took place in that second subjugation. And, of course, it was natural for them. These were the traditional and historical enemies of Judah. So they came together and came against Judah during Jehoiakim's reign. Well, now a few years have passed. You've got Zedekiah on the throne. And these ambassadors are there. And quite frankly, as I look at this, I think Zedekiah is trying to get ahead of the game. He recognizes what the mistakes that Jehoiakim made and these uh, surrounding countries of Judah wound up coming against Judah. I think he was trying to align himself with these countries in preparation for the next resistance to Nebuchadnezzar and, and Babylon. Now, historically also, there is a, a, a historical event that took, that's recorded in the Babylonian Chronicles that took place around 593 B.C. There was actually an uprising in the city of Babylon. So there was some glimmer of hope by some that were opposed to Nebuchadnezzar that they were going to be able to throw him off. So here you've got the ambassadors from Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Phoenicia in Jerusalem in a council with the king of Judah, who was Zedekiah at the time. As they are meeting, in walks this crazy prophet Jeremiah. In walks Dan Fisher. You got Governor Stitt meeting with the other surrounding governors. And in walks Dan Fisher, wearing a yoke on his back, an oxen yoke, and crashes the party. So that's, that's the situation here. And... Fisher says this, and they command them, and command them, say, Thus says Jehovah Sabbath, the Lord of God's armies, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Thus shall you, you ambassadors, you go back and tell your bosses, your kings, that I have made the earth, I've made man, and I've made animal. My great power, my muscles, I've done all this, and I have given it to whom seemed appropriate to me. Now have I given all these lands, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Phoenicia, Judah, unto Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and not just mankind, but the beasts of the field as well. And all nations are going to serve Nebuchadnezzar and his son and his son's son in perpetuity. We're going to find out in the next chapter how long this is going to happen until the very time of his land has come. Then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. So what comes around goes around. Remember, God used Nebuchadnezzar to judge Judah, but then God used uh, uh, Media Persia to judge Nebuchadnezzar, and then Greece, and then Rome, and down through the ages, and ultimately the last confederation of this global confederacy of ten kings and the Antichrist. And then in those days, King Jesus comes back and sets up his throne, and uh, we call that the millennial reign of Christ. The Jews call it the age of the Messiah. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that that nation will I punish. Now remember, a yoke is what oxen would be bound together by. I think I had a picture of that. And like, yeah, there, that's, a, that's an old-time oxen yoke. You can see the, the little uh, the timbers coming down around the ox's neck to uh, really to... It was an act of... It was a demonstration of servitude. 
Uh, even they will serve the same Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, verse 8, and those that won't put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword, with the famine, and with disease, until who is consuming them? God. This is a judgment by the creator of the universe. But he is using the instrument of Nebuchadnezzar to implement this judgment. Therefore, don't listen to your false preachers, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers. Now again, Edom, Moab, Philistia, these were pagan nations. They had all sorts of gods that they worshipped. So that's the references to the sorcerers, nor to your enchanters and sorcerers, which speak unto you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you. They're going to wind up, if you listen to them, you're going to wind up being taken out of your land I'm going to drive you out, and you're going to die out of your land. But the nations that subject themselves to my discipline... Now, you guys have been here long enough. You know how I teach. You've got the King James Version up on the screen. What you're hearing me is doing the Paul's uninspired translation in 2021 English. But the nations that will not subject themselves to my discipline and serve the king of Babylon... Or those that, that do, I will let remain in their land. They will be under Nebuchadnezzar's control. Nevertheless, they're going to be able to stay in their land, stay in their homes, work their property, pay their taxes, but they're going to be subject to Nebuchadnezzar because I'm disciplining them. But I won't drive them out of the land. So, I'm doing this. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. I'm bringing this punishment on you for your disobedience. Not just Judah. It's going to be Moab, Edom, Ammon, Philistia, all of you. Why? Because they've been the traditional enemies of Israel. Remember the uh, promise to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So if you have been Israel's enemies, you are going to get it. Uh, and if you submit to my discipline, then you can stay in your land. If you continue to resist, if you fight me, then I'm going to take you out of the land and you're going to wind up dying in Babylon. How many of you got a whipping from a loving mother? How many, of you, how many of you had your mother say something along the lines, just bend over and grab your ankles and take it. If you fight me, it's going to be worse. I remember one time there was a misunderstanding and my mother obviously was wrong. I wound up at the wrong end of a belt. Dad's belt was like eight feet long because dad was a large man. I was about 13, I think. I think it was the last spanking that I ever got, at least from mom. Cindy beats me routinely. <laughs> and I was old enough where I was not going to cry. How many of you have ever looked up the word stubborn in the dictionary? If you have, you will find my mother's picture there. Mom was determined that she was not going to stop until I did cry. Just before I lost consciousness, about 40 lashes later, I finally decided to see things her way. So the point is, if you resist me, you're just going to make it worse. That's what God's saying in this situation. Verses 12 through 15, now we're going to see two contradictory messages by two contradictory men of God. First, you've got Nebuchadnezzar, or first, you've got Jeremiah. I spake also to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, according to all these words. I didn't just speak to these other ambassadors. I spoke to, Jer to King Zedekiah. 
Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Now understand, this is kind of a tough deal. Remember in the book of Judges, there were many times where Israel, the nation, the twelve tribes, were punished because of disobedience. And there were many times where God sent a Samson to rise up and resist and throw off the yoke. There was Gideon, God sent to rise up and throw off the Midianites. Um, But here, God's saying, don't resist. You've had this coming for a long time, actually 70 years, because they had not kept the sabbatical year for a total of 70 years, so 490 years in total. God said, this has been a long time coming. I'm going to give it to you. You take it. So Jeremiah says, to the king of the Jews there in Jerusalem, you are to bring your neck under the yoke of this Gentile king, and you're to serve him and his people, and if you do, you're going to live. Why do you insist on dying, you and the people, by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence? Because the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. Therefore, king, don't listen to the words of these yahoos, these false prophets that are telling you, you will not serve the king of Babylon because they're lying unto you. God has not sent them. They prophesy a lie in God's name, and as a result, He's going to drive you out of the land, and you're going to die out of the land, and these prophets are working against you. Now, look at this just as a moment in passing. You've got two groups, both claiming to speak for the Lord, but their message contradicts. One's telling the truth, one's lying. Obviously, there's a conflict between the truth claims of God and the false claims of Satan that goes all the way back into Eden when uh, Lucifer showed up to Eve and said, did God really say this? And we had a battle of truth claims. We have a lot of similar conflicts today. For example, I'll give you one in passing. You've got pastors that promote the LGBT agenda. You've got pastors that oppose the LGBT agenda and say that God created sexuality to be held sacred only within the safe boundaries of marriage between a husband and wife, period, no exceptions. Well, those messages are contradictory. Both are claiming to be ministers of God, but both can't be right. Who is right? the minister that actually is speaking God's Word. Now, we have something to help us with that. We can go right here, and we can find out exactly what God says. So, if someone honestly wants to know the truth, we can present them. This was a tough situation. He said, you look at God's promises to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's all about Israel being the head and not the tail, about promises of prosperity. But God also said, whether it be Leviticus or Deuteronomy, both extensively recorded, if you do it my way, I'll bless you. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to get in the promised land, and you're going to be prosperous. Everything's going to go well, and you're going to forget about me. You're going to think you did this all on your own. That Dan's message last Sunday about monuments and markers, memorials, remembering who we are, where we come from, why we're here. When you forget those things, God said, I'm going to punish you. Well, that's exactly what was going on. But you had prophets 
pointing to one section of the Bible saying, oh no, look, we've got God's temple. We're God's people. Nothing's going to happen to us. Then you had Jeremiah and others saying, hey, God's going to judge us. Look over here. He said he was going to judge us. We're guilty. Look at everything we've done. It's coming. And Jeremiah spoke to the priests saying, thus saith the Lord. Don't listen to the words of these false prophets that prophesy unto you. Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house shall shortly return from Babylon because they're lying unto you. Don't listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon. God is punishing you. Why are you going to insist on God to destroy the temple and destroy the city? So you've got Jeremiah saying, repent. You've got the false prophets saying, we don't need to repent. Everything's good. Look, we've got the temple. As a matter of fact, they were preaching a message. You guys remember if you were here during our study of Ezekiel, you had false prophets that said, hey, any time, any time now, you just look at it, Jehoiachin is going to return from, from Babylon. And he's going to be bringing all of the stolen uh, implements and instruments from the temple. All that stuff. He's, got, he's bringing it back. Jehoiachin is going to show up every, any day now. Everything's going to be all right. Well, that wasn't true at all. Jeremiah was telling them the truth, telling them exactly what was going to happen, but that wasn't a popular message, and they didn't like it. But if they be prophets, and again, a prophet is supposed to speak the word of the Lord, and if the word of the Lord be with them, then let them now make intercession to the Lord of God's armies, that the vessels which are still in the temple remain there, and they don't get hauled off to Jerusalem along with the house of Judah. For thus saith the Lord of hosts regarding the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the bases, and concerning the residue of the vessels that remain in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took not when he carried away Jeconiah. That's, uh, the, that was the second conquest. That was when Ezekiel was taken. The son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yea, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that haven't been hauled away yet, that are still in God's temple, that they shall, they shall be. You better pray hard because they're going to be carried off to Babylon. There will be a day until the day that I visit them and return them, God says. So what's he talking about here? Well, he's referring to the other temple vessels. Not all the vessels of the temple were taken to the first and second sieges. Now, first of all, the Ark of the Covenant never indwelt Herod's temple. It was in the tabernacle as they were going through the wilderness 40 years. It was in Shiloh in the tabernacle there for 369 years until Eli and his sons said, we're at war with the Philistines. Hey, let's take the Ark of the Covenant. We're undefeated behind the Ark of the Covenant. Let's take that out. And of course, you remember what happened. They wound up getting whipped because it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant. It was all about God. They were disobedient to God. When Solomon built the temple, the Ark of the Covenant was back in the area that was called the Holy of Holies. That was the rear chamber of the temple. The high priest only entered into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And then with great ceremony, he took blood in and he he interceded on behalf of the people. But before the city was destroyed, actually it's Historically, the Jews say that Hezekiah took it and hid it somewhere. There's some stories that Solomon actually created a duplicate and that it's the real one was in Egypt. I know where the real one is. Anybody ever saw Indiana Jones in the first movie? It's buried in some government warehouse somewhere. 
But the Ark of the Covenant never was in Herod's temple. So the temple that was in existence when Jesus was there, that back chamber was just an empty room. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in there with his coals and incense, and there would just be an empty room. And he would go through the motions, but there was no Ark of the Covenant there. So it was not hauled away to Rome in 70 A.D., nor was it hauled away to Babylon in 606. However, the gold was taken in the first conquest. And in Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, in, in Solomon's temple, uh, you, know, you remember in the, in the tabernacle there was one golden candlestick and one table of showbread and one altar of incense. Well, in Solomon's temple they had ten golden candlesticks. They had ten tables of showbread, all made of gold. Well, all those got hauled off in the first conquest because gold was valuable. Well, during the second conquest, Nebuchadnezzar took all the silver, but he left the brass. Well, what's left? These pillars outside the front of Solomon's temple. If you read in 1 Kings chapter 7, you see some of the details of what was inside the temple. And that's some of the things that are referenced here. You had two pillars, 27 feet tall, 18 feet in circumference, made of brass, called Joachim and Boaz, counsel and strength. You had outside this giant mikvah. If you can see there, see those 12 oxen. There were three oxen facing each direction. On top of this was this giant uh, area to hold water as there was much ceremonial cleansing, hand washing, foot washing, bathing. This thing was 15 feet across, seven and a half feet deep, held 11,000 gallons of water made of brass. In addition, you had these smaller uh, receptacles, 12, uh, excuse me, 10 brass water carts. They would take the water and they could use it uh, more handily for various things, more priests, um, more cleansing, each holding about 220 gallons. All of this stuff was still there in the temple. All of it was valuable, but Nebuchadnezzar left it. Again, he'd taken the gold, he'd taken the silver, but there was still brass. The false prophets were saying, hey, any time now, we don't need to repent. Jeho- Jeconiah, uh, Jehoiachin is going to come back. He's going to bring back all the gold in the temple, and we're going to live happily ever after. Jeremiah was saying, uh-uh. Not only is that not happening, but this place is going to get destroyed and all that's left is going to be taken off to Babylon and placed in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, temple. By the way, if you were to go to Jerusalem now, they still have water there for the ceremonial cleansing. You can see this walkway, this actually is on a slope descending down from the upper terrace to what's called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. And there you've got this... uh, um, um, place of cleansing. I forget the word I'm looking for. But it's, it's, it's where the, the Jews will wash their hands and feet in preparation to approach the holiness of God in the most holy place in the Jewish world, which is right there close to the temple. So chapter 28 continues. Now they aren't in the council of Zedekiah. Now they have moved. It's about the same time, but they are now in the temple court. And in verse 1, and it came to pass the same year, during the early part of Zedekiah's reign, in fact, specifically, this was in the fourth year, in the fifth month. This is important when we get to the last verse of this chapter. Hananiah, the son of Azur the prophet, which was of Gibeon, spoke unto me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests, and of all the people. Hananiah was contradicting Jeremiah. He was obviously a false prophet. Now, Gibeah... This being a Gibeon, he was from a city 
that if you go back and you read it, when Joshua conquered the land, was one of the cities that was set aside for the priesthood. So it is assumed that uh, Hananiah was of the priesthood. Jeremiah actually was of the priesthood as well. Um, If you read Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel pronounces a judgment against a priest, a bad priest named Jeazaniah, the son of Azur. It is logical to conclude that Hananiah and Jeazaniah were brothers, sons of Azur from the city of Gibeon, both wicked, false priests. And Hananiah was not just a priest, but he was a false prophet. He was falsely speaking on behalf of the Lord. Verse 2, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. So this is what the false prophet Hananiah is saying. He's saying, God said, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now remember, previous chapter, you had Jeremiah walking into this meeting of political leaders from five or six countries wearing a yoke. Well, that's a visual. That's, a, that's one of those that will burn in your mind for a memory. He walks in wearing an ox's yoke. Says, you're all going to be wearing one of these. Matter of fact, I've made copies of these for each of you to take back to your kings and let them know you're all going to be wearing one of these. Well, Jeremiah is still wearing this. What a miserable job he had. He had to wear this thing a while around town as a visual reminder to the Jews of what was coming. Now you've got Hananiah standing in the court of the temple saying, God has told me I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. In fact, in less than two years, I'm going to bring again to this place all the vessels that have been taken out of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And remember, he was the king that was taken captive. Zedekiah was not in proper authority. He was a puppet king placed there for uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, stead. And obviously, Zedekiah would have a hard time gaining the legitimacy of his reign because, one, he wasn't proper in line to rule, kind of like this, never mind. Um, And then secondly, you got some of these false prophets that were supposedly on his side saying that he wasn't really the legitimate king, that any day now Jeconiah was going to return and we can get rid of Zedekiah, this bozo, and put Trump back on, I mean, sorry, and and get, get things back in order. Okay. Within less than two years, he's going to, Jeconiah is going to return and going to bring all the God's instruments back here, along with all the, those that have been taken captive into Babylon. For God said, I'm going to break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So clearly contradicting what Jeremiah had said. Now here, here's another visual. You can see the ten uh, uh, basins of, of water. You can see the larger, uh, the golden, or the brass sea there and the, and the twelve oxen. You can see the altar and, uh, again, the, the, the pillars and everything, a depiction of Solomon, or Solomon's temple. In verse 5, Then the prophet Jeremiah said unto the prophet Hananiah, By the way, one's a legitimate prophet, one is a false prophet, both identified as being spokesmen of God. In the presence of the priests... And in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord. So this is a good uh, audience. Even the prophet Jeremiah said, okay, so you had Hananiah saying, oh, we've got nothing to worry about any time now. Jeconiah is going to come returning and he's going to bring all, of, all, the, all the stolen items back to the temple. Everything's going to be good. What did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah mocked him. He said, amen. Truth. Amen. May it, be, may it happen just as you. Boy, I hope so. I love your version of the story a lot more than mine, Hananiah. May the Lord perform the words that you have prophesied. May the Lord bring again the vessels to the Lord's house. 
and all the people that were carried away captive from Babylon into this place. Nevertheless, you bozo, I added that, hear thou now this word that I speak in thine ears and in the ears of all the people. The prophets that have been before me, go all the way back to Micah and Isaiah and all the prophets of God, and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, um, 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 uh, oh, good grief, where did um, uh, Jonah go? Um, uh, Nineveh um, and Assyria, uh, prophesied against many countries and against great kingdoms. They have prophesied of war and of evil and of pestilence. Remember, that's those, that's those judgments that God keeps talking about, the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. The prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. So again, what was the test of whether a prophet was from God or not? He's 100% accurate. If he says something that doesn't happen, he's a false prophet, what were they supposed to do? Stone him. That's exactly right. So as soon as Jeremiah speaks these words with all the townspeople there, then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from off of the prophet Jeremiah's neck, and he smashed it to the ground and broke it. And Hananiah spake in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. The prophet Jeremiah went away. Is Christianity controversial? Absolutely. Folks understand. You know, Dan preached the message, what was it, a non-offensive gospel or an offensive gospel? Hey, whenever there is error and you come and present truth and identify something as error, that is not going to be well received by those or their proponents of the error. Generally, if a, here's a, if a ruler is 12 inches and people are arguing over the dimensions of this room, and then we take the ruler out and we prove that it's actually so many feet, when they can't argue on the facts, they will attack the fact giver. That's why in every situation they never argue the facts, they always attack the person. Even Paul, if you remember, in his epistles, was having to defend that he was actually an apostle. Because he couldn't argue with what he was saying, but they said, oh, Paul, he's not an apostle. He's just some fly-by-night. Oh, he, he hasn't. So they try to attack credibility. Well, this whole thing was controversy. And imagine, you know, here you've got the prophet Jeremiah who was unloved. You've got this prophet, false prophet Hananiah who was loved, and they're in a fight. Hananiah is saying, this is what's going to happen. Jeremiah is standing right up there next to him saying, uh-uh, he's lying. This is what's going to happen. Hananiah says to Jeremiah, that man's a liar, and then attacks him in church. Takes the yoke off of him. So we've got assault, battery, destruction of private property. See, you've got to learn to read the Bible. This stuff was real. This was really going on. We're hearing the, the play-by-play details, and you understand the spiritual aspect behind it, but that's what's taking place here. Jeremiah amazingly did not respond. As we have seen, Jeremiah was very open and honest, and he poured his heart out to God. But he was amazing 
He only spoke the Word of God to the people. So there were times he would sit there and say, God, this is just not fair. I don't know why you're letting this happen to me. I'm doing exactly what you said, okay? But when it was before the people, it was, thus saith the Lord. And it was never, let me give you my opinion. It was always, thus saith the Lord. So here, he had spoken God's Word. Hananiah had attacked him, taken the yoke and broke it, tried to counter what Jeremiah had said. Jeremiah was wise enough. God hasn't spoken to me to, to respond to this, so I will not speak. But it didn't take long before God did speak. Then the Word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet. After that, Hananiah, the prophet, had broken the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, I want you to go and tell Hananiah this, Thus saith the Lord, You have broken this yoke of wood. That's not going to change anything. Actually, you're just making it worse. God will make for them, the Jews, a yoke of iron. In other words, this is coming. You cannot avoid it. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, again, Jehovah Sabbath, Lord of hosts, is the Lord of armies. That is the, that is the Lord that uh, attacked Jericho, um, the God of Israel, the warrior, who will show up again at Armageddon, by the way. I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations, Ammon, Moab, Philistia, um, uh, Edom, um, uh, Phoenicia, and they will serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, I have given him not just the people, but also their property, the beasts of the field as well. Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah, the prophet, listen to this, Hananiah. The Lord has not sent you, you false lying sack. You can see that that's implied in there, can't you? You say, Brother Paul, sack of what? That's up for your creativity. You can fill in that blank. Sack of manure. But thou makest this people to trust or believe in a lie. Folks, James talks about those that aspire to be teachers. And you've heard me talk about this. You've heard Dan talk about this. There is a great responsibility in teaching the Word of God. And that's why I am always very clear, and he is as well, we hide behind Acts 17.11. I can assure you that we will never mislead you. Everything that we teach will be well-researched and well-thought-through and consistent, and we are convinced is 100% accurate. Nevertheless, just as Paul told the... uh, uh, um, Bereans, thank you, as he complimented the Bereans, you make sure that we're right. But these false preachers are intentionally misleading people to enrich themselves, to find favor, and every other reason to justify their uh, sinful existence. I don't know. Try to explain why we have so many churches in America today, yet we look like we do culturally. We still have 70% of Americans roughly identify as being Christian. Now, that's not just abandoning the faith, but we have had a significant immigration of non-Christian historical nations since 1980 and the fall of Iran. 
So, but now, even so, 70% of Americans still identify as being Christians. Yet, as Barna has found out in his research, I think the most recent numbers, I don't know if Dan's back there knows it, I think the most recent numbers were something like 4 or 6%. You know, I use a statistic that goes back to 1994 where the number was 8% of those that professed to be not just, but those that identified as born-again Bible-believing Christians, when they are actually tested over their faith, in 1994, only 8% actually had a biblical worldview. Now the number is something like half of that. How can that happen? Well, you've got a lot of preachers that aren't God-called. They're, they're preaching a lie. Verse 16, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will, Hananiah, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth. Now, there's some wordplay in here in the Hebrew. There's two words that basically rhyme uh, as far as this casting out. And the point that's making here is Hananiah. And let, me, let me tell you what's going to happen to you for being a false prophet. N- not only is, is, there, is Jeconiah and not going to come back in, within two years, um, but before the end of this year, you're going to die. So not only is Jeconiah not coming back and bringing the temple in, uh, t- uh, articles with him, uh, you're not even going to see the end of this year because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. They didn't have to wait long. Verse 17, so Hananiah the prophet died the same year. Now, you remember the first verse, it said the fifth month of the fourth year of the reign of King Zedekiah. We find out that less than 60 days took place from this confrontation in the temple where Hananiah took the yoke and broke it, called Jeremiah a liar, Jeremiah said, one of the two of us is a false prophet. God will determine that. Within 60 days, Hananiah was entombed. So vengeance does belong to the Lord. God says that he will repay. Hananiah was guilty of being a false prophet. God killed him. All right, we'll stop right there. Uh, We will pick up next week in chapter 29. Chapter 30 and 31, uh, we're getting it. Well, all of this, I enjoy the study of Jeremiah so much. Chapter 31, we are going to actually find, once we get there, which is three weeks or less than that, where the term New Testament comes from. We reference it the night of our Lord's Supper, but uh, the idea of the New Testament was actually promised and foretold in the Old Testament. So we're going to come into some really wonderful passages of Scripture, many of which that you are probably more familiar with than some of these others of the 50-something chapters of the book of Jeremiah. So next week we'll pick back up in chapter 29.